As you're listening to this episode, let us know if you have any questions for our guest. If so, please send us a message to team at onehaas.org or join our discussion board using our Clever podcast app. You can download the app at clever.fm. Welcome to the One Haas podcast. I'm Chris Kim. Today we have Tracy Gray, Berkeley Columbia EMBA alum. Tracy is managing partner at the 22 Fund, founder of We Are Enough, and lead partner at Portfolio Green and Sustainability Fund. Tracy is an innovative and visionary leader with experience in international investments and business strategy. Tracy, welcome and great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, Tracy, it's a, uh, it's a great opportunity and an honor for me to have you on the show. Could you maybe start off with and just share with us, you know, where did you grow up and, and where did your story begin? Well, my dad was in the Air Force. So for the first half of my youth, I used to say the first half of my life, but now I'm too old. But the first half of my youth, I, I was born in Nebraska and then my dad went all over the United States. Was that We lived in Okinawa. Oh, wow. Before he retired in Santa Barbara County in a small town called Lompoc that is next to Vandenberg Air Force Base. So from about seven or eight until I was 18, I lived in Lompoc, California, near Santa Barbara and Vandenberg Air Force Base. And, and what was that like growing up? I mean, you know, that's a that's a pretty diverse experience, you know, starting even from a, a young age. What, what was that like growing up? And were there any memories or early experiences that you had that may have formed who you are today? Yes, I rem- greatly remember very fondly growing up in Okinawa. I was there from I think I was like three to seven. And so I spoke fluent, you know, seven-year-old Japanese. I don't know any of it anymore, unfortunately, (laughs) because I think it'd be a great circus trip for a Black woman to speak Japanese. And so I remember all my friends, we lived off the base for a big chunk of time, so you really get to go into the culture. So I spent a lot of time at what we call Japanese villages. I don't even know if that was the appropriate name now, but, and my best friend was Japanese, We spent the beaches in Okinawa were just gorgeous. We spent a lot of time just roaming around as children without our parents even feeling perfectly safe at the beach, in the water, out at night, all the time. So I always had a very safe childhood that I still throughout my teens. And I love international travel. And that's why I focus on international business. And I've been to 41, 42 now countries. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. So I think being traveling everywhere with my family, when my dad retired, he was done, right? He had traveled so much. He just wanted to stay home. And I, to this day, get itchy if I'm not on a plane. So you can imagine during the pandemic, although I didn't mind being home because I had traveled so much. On the day I was fully inoculated, which was on my birthday in 2021, I was fully inoculated. I was on a literally on a plane that day. Oh, wow. So I think my love of travel that I don't think my my brother got so much because it wasn't so probably so great for him because he was a black, you know, a black child during the 50s. And my parents still had to ride in the back of the bus in certain places. 
couldn't vote here in the United States, really, but were in the Air Force and was free. I think he didn't have the same experience as being like the only. But I, by the time I came, it was very diverse. I felt no problem. So, yeah, that really informed my love of travel and getting to know other cultures. It also informed me in that the Air Force, which I'm very anti-war, but I was a systems engineer on the space shuttle. I love space. So I think that love of space came from my dad's time in the Air Force. That's an amazing experience. Tracy, I know, you know, one of the major inflection points for for folks is often, you know, even going to college and, and you didn't go too far for, for college. Would love to maybe ask, what was that experience like? And as you were going through the decision process for a lot of young folks, a, a very important decision process, uh, what was that process like for you? And, and how did you decide on, on you know, your eventual major that you um, studied in college? I knew I was going to major in math and engineering from the time I was like, I mean, that was not even a thought. Oh, wow. I think that also has a comes from that I was raised in Japan and Okinawa, they were very focused on math. And mm. at a very early age, I, I like to say like when I was four, I was doing division. And wow. so when I came to the United States, I was ahead of everybody in math. Wow. And you know how kids like when they're like ahead of something, they will mm -hmm. focus on that. So, and I'm very yep. competitive. So it's <laughs> like, oh, I'm winning in math. I'm going to be a math major. So that was... Mm never going to be, that was never anything different. There was nothing I was ever going to be do differently. I one time thought I'd be a math teacher. And then when people were like, women are all should be teachers. I was like, no, I'm not going to do what you think women <laughs> should do. So teacher was out. And then I, so I was always going to be a math or engineering major. I was going to, I applied, I looked where math and engineering were strong. And like most young people, I wanted to get away from my hometown but I wanted to stay in California. So I was looking at Cal Poly San Luis, and then I was looking at UCLA. And my dad said, all right, you can go to UCLA only if you get in the dorms. But when I think back, he knew I procrastinated with everything I did and the dorms were hard to get into if you didn't you know, apply soon. So I didn't get in the dorms. And so he, cause he wanted me to go to UC Santa Barbara. He wanted me to be as close to home as possible. He knew my brother went to Cal Poly. He knew that, you know, San Luis was not going to be for me. It's, you know, it's very mm. ag. I guess there's a lot of ag tech coming out of that now and engineering. And I think he knew I wouldn't go there, but I think he was okay. Cause I was closer than Los Angeles. He hates, mm. he hated Los Angeles. But when he told me I couldn't go to UCLA, I was like, I'm going to get even with him. I'm going to go to my junior college, which is what he really did not want me to do is go to a junior college because each one of his kids went. And I think he didn't want you can. Our junior college felt like high school. It's all the same people and you kind of lose a year. And so I was like, I'm going to get back at him and go to my Alan Hancock Junior College, which I got back at myself because I lost a year. <laughs> you know, I literally lost a year. Um, he was right. And I was like, okay, I give in. I'm just going to go to UC Santa Barbara. And it was the perfect school for me. You know, it was by the beach still, but it was really hard. You know, it's hard having that beach and then having to go to school. <laughs> you know, and, it, and I was in the engineering school at first, but, you know, the problem sets back then for engineers were very focused on male engineers. And so it was like, Let's find the forces around this 
part in the engine. And I'm like, where's the engine? You know, why couldn't you have done forces around something girls were used to? Like, you know, not to be um, sexist, but we were pushed into sewing machines and, you know, mixers and things like that. But you can easily find forces around things that weren't so male oriented and that and I didn't do well because I had, you know, I had, it was really hard for me to figure out just the, what they were telling me to look for. And so, I mean, there's a lot of research that shows that when girls don't do well, we quit and we do something else. And I hate to be a statistic, but I quit um, mechanical engineering and went into where I was really good was math. And that's how I landed on applied math, mathematical science as my major, because I still loved engineering and I wanted to be in aeronautics. There's no aeronautics at Santa Barbara, but so what I did is I kind of created my own degree and thank God there was a woman in the math department, a black woman and her name, I don't remember her, her last name, but her first name was Princess. And so I was like, oh, she's a princess. And she pushed, she let me do this, like create this mathematical science to with aeronautics emphasis. And that's how I made my decision. And so if, you know, if there's someone young look, trying to figure out their decision and going to school and listening, I would say, don't be afraid to do what you really want and to say what you want. If I wouldn't have said I wanted to do this and create this, take this chance and create this, my own major almost, um, it wouldn't have had, I would have had a whole different life path probably. But um, whatever gave me not being fearful about asking that was really fortunate. It all worked out fine. I loved being at UC Santa Barbara. That's an amazing experience, Tracy. I know you had a, a pretty amazing and diverse, you know, in terms of different things that you were able to do professional career. What did you do right after you graduated from college? And, and how did you find that path to where you land, uh, you know, soon after graduating uh, from Santa Barbara and then going to the professional workforce? Well, there, the path was very crooked and lots of distractions. So I always say I'm like um, a dog with, a, you know, squirrel. And I like, that's mm. my career. <laughs> I'm like, oh, there's something fun over there on my path. Sounds very familiar. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to step off the path and go in that direction now. But I knew, you know, I wanted to be an astronaut. And I'm not talking about 10 years old, I wanted to be an astronaut. Yes, at 10 years old, but I applied at 23 when I first got my, when I got my first job. And my first job was as a systems engineer and a mission monitor on the space shuttle program. And I'm, as my, my one thread through my whole career has been, I fell into everything because mm. I can be one, a procrastinator, two, I can be kind of lazy. Like I have this weird laziness go-getter like in me. And so I wait kind of to the last minute to do things and I like the easy way. So usually it's someone coming to me with an opportunity. And I've criticized myself for that for a long time, but it's like, but I've always been ready for the opportunity to come. So I was like, okay, I jump at the opportunity. So that's okay. And that's how I, so my, even my career, I wanted to work for NASA. I didn't really know how to do it. And I didn't want to do all the work to figure it out. I was an intern my last year of college at the NASA headquarters. But I, when I was there, I was enjoying myself so much. I didn't really think about what networking do I need to do to get to NASA when I'm out of school. I just, 
you know, I don't, I didn't think that way. But luckily, my one of my good friends, her father worked for an aerospace corporation that had contracts with the space shuttle. And I was starting to look for a job and he said to me, and you know, I probably should have been insulted, but I was like, well, that's, this is okay. He said, you know, I don't hire A students because they don't listen to me. And I don't hire C students because they don't try hard enough. I like B students. <laughs> Tracy, I know Very you specific. well enough. I know you are, you could be an A student and you could be a C student, but you're a B student. Would you want to work? on this contract with NASA. And I was like, yes, I do. And that's how I got, you know, it was like my network that what we learn now, it's all about your network and who you know. And that was how I ended up working on this contract for the space shuttle program. I remember I was in line for a job at Hewlett Packard and I'm so glad I didn't, <laughs> so glad I didn't do that. That wouldn't have been, it would have been a whole different route. But so that's how I got my first job in, and I worked on the spatial contract here in Southern California. I went all over the country to the different NASA sites around the country. I helped. It was DARPAnet. It was before the Internet, but DARPAnet became the Internet. So I actually worked on the, was on the Internet and connecting the NASA's different sites to each other so they could communicate. And then when the shuttle was up, I was a mission monitor and was pretty much translating the technical terms that the astronauts were talking about to lay people so they understood what was going on. Because this was right after Challenger accident and the lay people and the Air Force and the generals, they didn't know, the reporters knew before them what happened. And so they wanted to make sure that didn't happen again. So part of my job was briefing, do briefings for them on what happened each 24-hour period that the shuttle was up so that they would be informed if something went wrong. Tracy, I know, you know, from just seeing your professional background, you know, you've done a, a ton of stuff in tech and also as an investor. But one of the other themes that sticks out is you've had a, a really long relationship with kind of Los Angeles and the greater Los Angeles area. Could you maybe talk a bit about, you know, kind of where did that journey start and how you got connected and how that's kind of progressed over, over the years? You've really done a, a wide variety of different things in, in the area. And it's really, I think, a great testament to, you know, as you were saying, kind of being open and, and willing to, to try new things, but apply all that kind of background and experience that you had already developed. Well, yeah, you know, I think the person I am, I would have done the same thing wherever I lived. I've been ambivalent to Los Angeles since I've lived here, going on, mm. I don't know how long, 30 years now. I don't want to say it's a love and hate relationship with Los Angeles. It's ambivalence. It's like, mm. I like the weather. I, all my friends are here, so I'll keep staying here. Yep. It's yep. close to my hometown, so I could see when my parents were alive. It was easy to see my parents. My sister lives here, but I, I'm not, it's not that I'm like all in on Los Angeles. I just mm. am the type of person wherever I, where if I'm living someplace, I've got to be active, helping, supporting of the community I live in. And it doesn't matter if it's my county or my city or my micro neighborhood here in downtown LA in the arts district. I am going to be a citizen 
you know, so all the work I've done around Los Angeles is just, I feel like it's my duty as a citizen of the city and the county. So I'm not sure if that's answering your question, but that's, I don't know how another way to exist in the world as a citizen if you don't support where you live and support the people who don't have all the advantages as you do. So, you know, I've worked for an economic development nonprofit that was fighting for workers' rights and unionizing workers around all the development that was dislocating people in Los Angeles. Not a nonprofit gal. Was not, you know, I, I have my own nonprofit, but I, I'm not great at working for one. And then I, you know, I've worked for in the, Los, in the music industry in Los Angeles and other parts of the world. And then I worked for one of the first venture funds in Los Angeles. And then finally... We did a stint in the mayor's office as a senior advisor to the mayor for international business. And I call that my recession job because I was launching a venture fund, right? We, you know, right when we got out of school, it was 2007, 2008, mm-hmm. and um, launching a fund and, and secured an anchor investor for a fund that was doing what everyone's doing now, not everyone, but more people are doing investing in women and people of color in early stage tech. That's what I launched with a classmate in business school, from business school in 2007. And then 2000, August, 2008, I, it was, I secured an anchor investor from my work at the nonprofit. But then September, 2008 came and it was Lehman Brothers and the world fell apart. So I couldn't raise, a, there's no way I could raise a fund. I didn't think I could raise a first-time fund during that time. And then that's how I ended up in the mayor's office. And, I mean, it wasn't a straight line like that, but I was a consultant to the mayor's office to help them raise equity capital for affordable housing. And then they asked me to come in on staff. And that's how I came up with my, got to my strategy of my fund now was from that, what I called, that I used the pejorative of my recession job. But without that job, I wouldn't have the 22 fund. So I'm fair. I should tell the mayor that I'm former mayor that I'm very grateful that I worked for him. Yeah. It's a great point, maybe, Tracy, to to talk through. You know, you know, by the time you had already started business school and and for folks who aren't who aren't aware, you know, the the executive MBA program is is a very kind of prestigious and, and very competitive uh, program as well. But, you know, for folks who go into that program, they already have a ton of accomplishments, really a, a, a ton of experience as well, you know, just as a prerequisite to get into the program. Could you share a little bit of why you decided to go back to school and get an MBA, even after having, you know, years of experience and, and really having done a, a lot of amazing things, even before get, getting to, to business school? Well, it has, a, it's kind of a societal issue for women, especially black women. We, I don't want to say we never think we're enough, but we never think we have enough credibility in the eyes of others that we can do the job we want to do. So I felt like if I was going to really, I wanted to go have my own fund, you know, the, the route to being in venture, sil- the Silicon Valley route to being in venture capital was you work in the analyst as a fund, you go work for a portfolio company, then you get your business degree, then you come back as a principal or, and then you move up a partner. 
And I was like, okay, I want to have my own fund. So I'm going to circ, and I don't want to work for a portfolio company. That's a, and they, my, the fund I was at said, you know, you should work for one of the portfolio companies. And that's when I quit, but I didn't quit because of that. I quit because all I saw us giving mainly, you know, it's like 99% white men just throwing money at them. And I didn't understand why we weren't throwing money at women and people of color. Mm. And so I knew I wanted to, when I left my fund, I got fund, I knew I wanted to start my own fund, but I always thought I needed as much credibility as possible and more education. That's why black women are the most educated demographic in the country because we get all these degrees because people think we don't know enough or are enough, but we know we are, but we got to get it on paper. So I wanted to get my MBA for that reason. I, 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 when I was working at the nonprofit, the executive director, she had her law degree and worked in real estate development law. Mm-hmm. Yet she was fighting when she was running this nonprofit, she was fighting for the rights of the community to not be displaced from development. So she'd be at the negotiating table with these developers and their lawyers. And I, they would just talk so down to her the whole time. Mm-hmm you know, trying to educate her about what development is really like and you don't know what you're talking about. And then she'd sit there, be quiet. And then when they finished, she'd say, well, and she'd tell them what she knew, you know, and be able to, and they didn't even take the time to do research to see that she worked at a top law firm on their side of the, you know, of the equation. And it was, and it used, I just like, ah, it's like she, She's like superwoman and takes off her suit and underneath there's that cape, you know? And I was like, okay, my, I need an MBA for my cape. I need that. And so I was, I'm not just going to get one MBA from one top 10 school. I need to get two. And yeah. that's how I ended up getting uh, Berkeley and Columbia MBA. And I could still be my lazy self and not have to go to both schools, <laughs> you know, not have to go to two different schools, but could get it all with one degree. Yeah, and that's how I did it. I just thought I needed that credibility and validation to start my fund. And it really doesn't matter. They're going to still say no to you, (laughs) no matter what you have. If I would have invented venture capital, the system would have found a way to say no to giving me money. But it was great. I mean, it was one of the best experiences I ever had that time. As you know, it's really hard when you're working full time or... And then being in class all day, and then ours was flying between the two schools, plus the international. But it was, you know, I have great friends to this day that I could probably call for anything. And, you know, you go through boot camp together, and no one else understands that. Like, I mean, there's that analogy to my father. He had great friends from when he was in Vietnam and Korea, because no one really understands what you go to through unless you're there. So you need those people. And, uh, yeah. So a great network around the world I have from that time. Absolutely. It's, it's great to great to hear, Tracy. You know, I think for all of us who go through the MBA program, you know, regardless, you know, Haas is unique and, and has a, a full-time, a part-time and an executive MBA. But for all of us who go through the experience, we all know that it really is a, a life-changing and a, and a very positive experience, despite all of the difficulties of writing equations and doing formulas and, you know, business strategy and marketing. The money you have to All spend. the money you spend on the program. <laughs> it was worth it. That Absolutely. was the best. It is. Absolutely. Multi-$100,000 check. <laughs> <laughs> 
we laugh about it, but but it it is truly a, a life changing experience, and and hopefully for the better for folks who go through it. Tracy, could you could you share a bit, you know, how you decided to make your transition? You know, as you mentioned, you you already had some experience on the investing side. You had gone through the MBA program, and you were uh, already in the mayor's office and transitioning to your next kind of career, where where we maybe come to today. You know, you've founded a, a number of organizations, and also have your funds that you're managing. Could you explain what that transition was like and, and how did you go through that process of knowing when to start and and to, to take on this next stage, which you've been doing for a number of years now? I find it all so interesting that people think I really sat and thought about it and planned, but honestly, I fall in, I really do fall into things. The one thing that I, so the 22 fund, I knew after being at that venture, the venture capital fund I was in, um, Zone Ventures in 1999, that venture capital was what I was wanting to do. It was fun. It was hard, but it was like, that's what I wanted because as you can tell, I have professional ADD. So working for one company doing what that does one, you know, thing in yeah. one industry was not going to work for me. Also, I'm not a great employee. You know, if, if anyone comes to you and say, you should hire Tracy Gray, you run because <laughs> I am not a good employee. Like I, 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 and I know, you know, thyself, I, um, you know, I think I know more than a lot of people <laughs> and I don't like listening to people because I'm the youngest child and I'm you know, somewhat spoiled. So I'm just going to, I might say, yes, I'm going to do something. And then I think I'm going to, I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. Not the best employee. You know, I like to show up when I want to show up. I don't like this whole nine to five thing. I don't understand if I get the work done, why does it matter that I'm there doing the work? So, you know, now it all works real well for me. I had to be my own boss. I had to figure out a way to do that. But I wasn't, also wasn't a small business person that could, you know, those small business people that run small businesses with a few employees, that's super hard. So just remember, I'm, I'm lazy and ambitious. So, you know, I have to find the route where I can be really ambitious and do a lot, but it's got to be not as hard as someone running like a restaurant or a clothing store. I mean, that is too hard. So I knew I couldn't do that. And I knew I had to work for myself. So that was, and I knew I love venture capital. So that's been my goal to, to get, start my own fund. My nonprofit, We Are Enough, that just happened because I did a TEDx talk about women that was supposed to be about being the only black person in everything I did. But then I started doing the research, a lot of research that people know now about how little money is going to women entrepreneurs, yet we women control 75% of the consumer discretionary spend. So we have a lot of money to control and direct, but we don't invest. We give it all away. And women have this kind of, you know, not to curse, but this effed up relationship with money. We don't always like to say we make a lot or spend a lot or give away a lot. You know, it's like we just, society has done a number on us and our money with money. Yet, then I also saw that 85% of our capital goes to our family and our communities, and men, it's 30, 35%. And so I was like, okay, instead of going constantly going to men and begging, cajoling, guilting, shaming them into doing the right thing, which is to invest 
more in women. Women control so much money around the world. Why not educate the everyday woman, not the professional investor or finance person, but the everyday woman, the power of their wallets and how the literally the path to changing the world is through women. And I did, I, so I started We Are Enough after I did this talk, all these women were coming up to me and I thought I was just talking about, you know, his finance, but they were crying. Like women were crying <laughs> over a finance talk. And that is where I saw, okay, this is deep trauma, deep work that women need to do around our money and our power around money and our being okay with power. And so I launched We Are Enough in 2016 to educate. The only thing we do is ed educate everyday women why and how to invest in women-owned businesses or with a gender lens on the public markets. Because when you grow women's wealth, all those 17 SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, that mm -hmm. you hear a lot about, the majority of them are positively impacted by women growing their wealth, having more wealth. Everything from getting rid of sex trafficking to more education to climate change, everything changes when women have more wealth. And so I just fell into that too. And uh, this year, finally, we're going to, you know, knocking on wood, we're going to launch a global campaign to educate all women at every economic level how and why to invest in each other, taking a lead from the women in the global South who have already been doing this through microfinance villages from in India to the loan clubs in Kenya of women buying buildings in real estate. They're already doing it. So they can teach us in, you know, in the global North or the Western world a thing or two on how to support women and make money. Same time. You know, we've been talking a lot about the amazing things that you're doing, both kind of through your nonprofit, but you you also have a, a pretty interesting and amazing kind of professional business as well at the 22 Fund and and as a lead partner for Green and Sustainability Fund at Portfolio. Could you talk a little bit about your 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 business endeavors and and how you know what you focus on as as kind of a a leader in the in that capacity? You know, I still get when you say amazing work you're doing, it's, you know, it's just, I can't, I'm so stubborn. I can't help but do what I want to do. So I don't know if it's amazing. It's just that I'm a Taurus and stubborn. And if I want to do something, I'm going to do it. And then leadership, it's, you know, what is leadership? You know, I, I think it's, I'm considered a leader because I say whatever's on my mind and I'm not afraid to speak up. So I just wanted to put that little asterisk that, you know, that I still get uncomfortable when someone says, oh, the amazing work you're doing or your leadership. It's just, it's nothing special. It's just, that's just who I am. So the 22 fund, I really wanted, as I said, I, I tried to launch a fund of venture capital, early stage venture capital, investing in women and people of color that you see a lot of people doing now or a lot compared to before. I like to fill gaps. I'm not one to follow where everybody else is going because what's the point? Other people are already doing it. There's capital going there. Not a, nearly enough, but there's some go, there's, that's going there. Where is there a gap? And I knew I wanted a strategy that was a win-win, had high impact and high returns. I'm not, I wasn't interested in a trade-off or concessions between impact and returns. 
Nothing wrong with anyone wanting to have concessions, to have a purely impact fund that, you know, below market rate returns. I just didn't want to do that. That's not my philosophy. So I wanted to see what strategy was the best for that. Early stage investing in, in you know, tech, software, enterprise, not so much. It's going to have the impact that I want to have. And I wanted something that had multiple impacts. And so I landed on manufacturing, which when I started thinking about this, when I left the mayor's office, which was in 2013, when I left the mayor's office and really started to think about the strategy, you know, people didn't understand manufacturing and they didn't until the pandemic. And they, people didn't understand that the foundation of our economy literally is manufacturing and making things and selling them abroad. So if you're a manufacturer that exports your products to another country, sells to another country, but you're located here, you create jobs faster, they pay higher wages, and they're more likely to have health care. On top of that, when you export, you are more, so you have higher revenues and are more resilient and are more successful. So our strategy of investing in manufacturing to increase their international sales causes our impacts. And our, we call ourselves holistic investors, not impact investors, because we hit multiple positive impacts. It's not siloed with climate change, race or gender, or economic development. We hit it all just from this one strategy of investing in manufacturing to increase their export capacity. I won't go into all the whys and why we hit it all, but we do. So our mission is to create what we call the clean quality jobs of the future in low and moderate income communities and increase generational wealth for women and people of color. And that all happens just by our strategy. And so I found this, got this strategy that could do all that. And I don't have to like settle for one thing. I also believe we need to take a sector approach to climate change. Otherwise we get lost on how big the issue is and we rely, we think government's the only way to do it. But if you look at the sector you're in, the industry you in, you're in and focus it and really infuse climate action throughout it, you can have a big change. My, our sector is manufacturing. Manufacturing can be one of the dirtiest sectors. We can help clean that up by investing in technologies that manufacturers can use or creating clean tech manufacturing facilities, new tech. You know, we can do that by just our one sector. So that's, we're very focused on that. So that's the 22 fund. The Portfolio Green Sustainability Fund, if you don't know about Portfolia, Portfolia creates thematic funds that are focused on improving the lives and wealth of women. They may not describe it that way, but that's kind of the way I describe it. So they have different themes. They have ag tech and food. They have femtech. They have one that's focused just on women of color, aging. And then the most recent one is this uh, green sustainability fund. And as a lead partner, we are we're pretty much like the investment committee for a fund. So they have infrastructure that has the analysts to do the due diligence, do the investment memos if that's necessary, do everything that a venture fund would do. 
And then as the lead partners, we're like the partners of the fund, but we don't have to do all the like the work of a fund. We are the investment committee. And I think that right now there's four of us. And I think there's going to be one or two more lead partners on this fund. So this fund, and then they raise the fund usually from individuals, um, women and men who believe in this mission. Trish Costello, she, she, I believe she headed up the Kauffman Foundation's entrepreneurship program. And she started portfolio to focus on women. And that's what, so that's what we're doing there. Um, yeah. And so people can portfolio, they can submit their business plans on the site. And once a month we go through them and say which ones are the most promising. And then we have a, a pitch session, but it's not a pitch contest, which I am fundamentally against pitch contest for women and people of color, because like we're going after this small amount of money when the white yeah. dudes are out there just grabbing money if like falling from off trees and we do these pitch contests and I, so I'm fundamentally against those, but we do a pitch call where three entrepreneurs will come and then the, all the investors can watch the pitch. And it's open to all the investors. So I think they have like, you know, there's like 90 individual investors might be on oh, wow. a call um, because people do $10,000 at a time and they become LPs in a fund. And it really is opening up, you know, not everyone can afford 10000 but it's opening up more than being an LP where you have to put in, you know, millions of dollars into a fund. And they watch the pitch from then. And then we decide who that person is. I mean, if we're going to invest in all three of them or we're going to invest in one of them, whatever it's, um, but it's, um, that's the process. It's really quite revolutionary in a way, right? It's almost like a, a fresh look at, you know, how investing can be done. It's, it's really, really interesting to hear. Yeah. And, uh, you know, even, the, even the 22 fund is, you know, we invest equity, debt and revenue share. And that's hard, you know, when you're, it's hard to have to raise a first time fund when you are trying to do something no one's ever done before. And we literally, no one's ever done this model with these, with these types of capital, raising a hundred million, no woman of color, no black woman, maybe even no woman of their first time fund where they didn't spin out of some investment bank or some larger fund has raised over a hundred million dollars. And so when you're doing in this system of venture capital and the allocators, when you're doing something different, they don't like it. You know, it, it's a hard road to break out of the status quo. And I like to be outside the status quo. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are a number of uh, <laughs> Berkeley folks who would be on the same page uh, with you there, Tracy. <laughs> well, well, Tracy, I, you know, just kind of going the conversation, you, you've had you know, sustainability, race, and gender kind of at the forefront of, of your, you know, career, particularly, you know, this month as we're celebrating Black History Month and reflecting, you know, both on the past and looking to the future. Could you maybe share some of your thoughts on 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 the different topics that have been uh, area of passion for you and, and kind of what your take might be both kind of reflecting on the past and also looking to the future in that respect? Well, one, I'm ambivalent about Black History Month. <laughs> Another thing I'm ambivalent about, mm. I see the importance now that there's a lot of states that are trying to pretend that slavery didn't exist or, you know, they're banning books, doing this crazy yeah. stuff, trying to erase the bad of history. 
So before they did that, I was like, do we really, can we, can we just have black people in every month? Can you just have mm-hmm. us included in everything? And not just one month, you know, so that was same with Women History Month and Women International Women's Day. I'm like, really? Why do we let them just give us this one little bit and then they forget the rest of the time? I love that your podcast, you've had a black people throughout the podcast. So this isn't saying anything to you. Um, No, we're very, very intentional about it. Yeah. And I saw that. So I really appreciate that. And now I'm like, okay, you've got to keep highlighting history because people want to try to erase it. And I wonder yeah. why they want to erase it. Why are they, why are they fearful and embarrassed? You know, why are they fearful? Why are they trying to protect kids from the wrongs in the world? Anyway, so I'm very informed. You can't help being a black person and not be informed by our ancestors. It's, it's ancestral trauma, right? It is with us all the time and it's deep. And it informs a lot of we, what we do. And then now we're in, we're in constant trauma now. Like we're getting killed by police. We're being left out of the trying people to try to stop us from voting again. And all the things that we thought we had been done with, it comes back. So, you know, history will repeat itself if you are in denial of what, if you forget what happened. And we're in the middle of that right now. Another thing I think about Black History Month is what it does, it added Latinx History Month, Asian History Month, it added all that. And it allowed now, with all the trauma around race in our country that is in the forefront, before it was, you know, more under the surface, but always there. Mm. Now, I think Asians and every race is starting to see, you know, when people come after Black people, they start looking for another place to come after, right? They come after all of us that are do not fit in a particular way they think we should be. And so um, when I think about Black History Month and history, I think the history of Black people is the history of all people in this country, right? This isn't just my history, and it informs a lot of how people of color are treated. And I think the powers that be want to pit us against each other And we sometimes fall for it, right? You'll have brown and black people not getting along or Asian and black people not getting along. You know, we have, and it's not us. It's the powers that be need to keep us separate. And so this year of the race and ethnic months, I feel like we need one month at the end called the multicultural month where we all come together and talk about the power and the beauty of different cultures and what it has what it has built in this country. I don't even know what your question was, but I'm just thinking out loud right now. That is what I'm passionate about. And I'm sure it, it's informed from my international travels, my dad being the Air Force, where it's lots of diversity, lots of, you know, multiracial people, biracial people, because the, you know, the GIs were all over the world and they would meet wives everywhere. And that's what I grew up with. And I can't, and it's beautiful, you know, and I don't understand why people don't find it beautiful in my um, engineer mind when it's illogical, it just drives me crazy. And if it's illogical with injustice, like my head explodes and I have to fight it. So I don't know, like I said, I don't know what your question was, but 
That's what's on my mind right now when I think about Black People's History, Black History Month, our trauma, the trauma of many races and ethnicities and how that informs, always informs our work. And it should inform our work. If someone's not tapped into that in themselves, I recommend tapping into, into that because there's some deep strength you can get from the power of your ancestors and remembering what they did. That's how I feel like I can cha help change the world, tapping into my ancestors and those who came before me. I call myself an impatient Buddhist, and I'm also Episcopalian, so like you figure that out. But I, I think there, there's a lot we need to do, and we need to be engaged with the world to do it. And the world is so many different cultures and races that why would you, why would you not do things? In everything you do, it's got to be in your, prof I mean, for me, it's got to be in my profession. It's got to be in my, my recreational time, my personal time. It's, it's infused in everything I do. Yeah. Tracy, before we end, uh, we, we like to have a, a little fun lightning round where we just kind of ask, you know, uh, a couple quick questions. I, I know we're almost at, uh, at the end of our podcast. We'd love to just kind of do a, a quick lightning round if you'd be up for it and then uh, close out today's podcast. Uh, so one of the uh, questions, uh, a newer one. So you, you mentioned you love travel. So um, where's uh, one place that you traveled that you'd recommend other folks to go to? Well, I don't want to give it away because I don't want a lot of people to go. <laughs> <laughs> but I love, there's two places. Sorry, I don't follow the rules. Um, Croatia and Mozambique. Oh, wow. Berkeley question here. Um, could you share maybe a, a fond memory that you have from being in the MBA program? Playing light, late night poker where it was myself and one other, my B-school bestie, Ivana Ristic and I being the only women, maybe one other woman would be with us and all men. And usually we won. <laughs> That's an awesome memory. They uh, may say, uh, no, we didn't win, but we did win. What's one piece of advice that you would give to somebody, either professionally or uh, personally? Don't start with fear. Mm. I mean, fear, just the word fear is there to keep us down, to keep us small. Even if you are afraid, just start about, think about, start at a place where you think about all the wonderful things that could happen and go right. Because fear will always come in, but if you start there, it's hard to, to stop it. And last one, um, you know, what's one thing that gets you excited about the future? I mean, this is going to sound like a cliche, but young people and they're just like having no more F's to give around climate, around race, around gender. That is, you know, they literally are the future and we've done a number on that, trying to do a number on them and they're not letting go or stopping. And I, I'm just so, it, it, every day when I think about all the, all the things going on in the world, if I just take some time and look at my goddaughters and their children and my niece and nephew and then all the people around, young people around me, I, it's where I have hope. Well, Tracy, it's been great to have you on the, on the show today. I uh, want to say thank you again and uh, wish you all the best in the future. Thank you so much. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. 
you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. There you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. And until next time, go Bears. Thank you.